Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. We are back with another History for Weirdos episode. Woohoo! <laughs> the woohoo sounded so disingenuous. <laughs> what well, I it was completely not disingenuous. Was it ingenuous? No, Gen- genuous. Genuine. Genuine. Wow, I'm dumb. Okay. I mean, everyone, I've had the flu, so that's, and I'm still recovering from it, so I think I'm, like, operating, like, 50% right now. Yes, Andrew got really sick last week. You've had the flu pretty badly, and I was like, you know what, I bet, I think you should do this week's episode. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's like, you know what, I'm not gonna write another episode, and I'm just gonna have you do it. I think you should put in the work, and I think you should spend the majority of this episode talking. (laughs) Because that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, but uh, so sorry we didn't have an episode last, last week. week. Lots of crazy stuff. Some good, some bad. You all know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, mostly good stuff, though. I had um, some events for a uh, random. It has nothing to do with history for weirdos, but I wrote a mental health poetry book. Woohoo! <laughs> oh my god. That was genuine. <laughs> genuine. And um, so I had some like book events, which was great, but it took up a lot of time. Yeah. Um, we will share a link if anyone is like even remotely interested or wants to go la- laugh at me or something. We'll, we'll share a no. link. <laughs> Stephanie did an incredible job reading her poems in front of like a, a whole, like pretty large group of people. Mm, thank you. And I mean, she even got an encore. I literally, I'm, I'm not joking. Like people literally wanted more. They screamed more. They were not screaming. They're okay. Like... There's a few people that like yelled <laughs> quite or aggressively said more. <laughs> Because like, she was like, I'm just going to read one. And they're like, more. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. And Andrew, you were such a good support. I get very nervous with public speaking. Mm-hmm. The podcast doesn't feel like public speaking at all because we're sitting in our living room and just chatting. But speaking in front of an audience is definitely nerve wracking. So it like completely drained me last week. Right. And... We just had so much going on, and then Andrew got sick, and here we are, full circle. Here we are, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... Enough rambling. Enough rambling. Should we get down to business? Yes, please tell us what is this week's topic. Okay, so this is a a man, so not an event. This is a man. Okay. 20th century, so I'm, you know... Oh, very modern for you. Very modern for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Set in, like, the World War I era. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, I have to say, this is probably one of the most historical or most interesting historical characters I have ever researched. And when you ever think of someone who's like the main character, quote unquote, it's this dude. And, you know, before I even get into this story, I actually have to admit something. So I heard of our subject's name um, and, you know, to like, you know, ever since childhood. And to be honest... I didn't think he was even a real person until I was in college. Mm-hmm. Like, I just thought he was a made-up, like, fictional person because his story is pretty fantastical. Okay. Um, and and because his and even his name now is quite literally like legendary. Yes. Um, 
quote, you know, to quote Barney, legend, wait for it, dairy. Barney the dinosaur? Yes. That's definitely <laughs> Barney the dinosaur. <laughs> so, you heard okay. it here first, folks. <laughs> legend, wait for it, dairy. Barney, Barney the, the dinosaur. dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before I go on, do you have any guesses at this point? Someone. Okay. Do you... A dude. No. World War One. You want to know what first came to mind? Who? I don't know if it was Joey Tribbiani from Friends. <laughs> it's no, not Joey no, Tribbiani. But some character like that. Or like um, <laughs> Andy from Parks and Rec. Someone said something like they thought reindeer weren't real. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like Santa's creatures and that for some reason i was like is he gonna talk about reindeer that's a good episode though no but it's not reindeer it's it's one person reindeer are pretty cool a person that you thought was not real until college until college um kind of embarrassing honestly because they're legendary no i can't think of anyone that like that i've also thought potentially wasn't real but they are okay no it's okay because his name is T.E. Lawrence, but he's better known as Lawrence of Arabia. I also did not think he was a real person <laughs> until just now. <laughs> right? Because okay, that's, I, not a, that's not a storybook? It's, no, I mean, yes and no, it is, but it's about his real life experiences. Really? I thought it was um, like a, a fantasy book. Yeah, and I'll, then a, a movie and a video game. It and... is a movie, and we'll get into all of this. Okay. And in fact, it is video. I just yeah, a few years ago when there was there was a World War One video game that came out, um, which is pretty unique because it's usually it's always about World War Two. Always yeah. World War One was always forgotten about, and mm-hmm. I think it was called Battlefield One or what, I forgot. But anyways, one of the missions you play is T. E. Lawrence. Really? Yeah, pretty cool. So he his life is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I gather. Yeah, like he started life in controversy, even like as he was born out of wedlock, which oh dang, I know, and he's British, so and this is you know Victorian Old-timey. England, mm-hmm. so this is bad. This is not good. Sir Thomas Chapman, seventh baronet, he was a married man, and he left his wife to cohabitate with his mistress slash Lawrence Arabia's mother, Sarah Juner. Oh, but he actually left his wife. He left. Wow. And they cohabitated and everything. And like So they were living in sin in like Victorian era England? Yes. Wow. Salacious. We were living in sin once. Yes, many moons ago. Many moons ago. Now we're married. <laughs> Boring. Boring. <laughs> Lawrence's parents, so they'd never married, but they lived happily together under the pseudonym of Lawrence. Um, his family moved around quite a bit during his childhood and all of this traveling possibly could have in, could have inspired him to travel a lot more in his younger adult years, mm-hmm. which is going to be important for the story. Um, and again, like I had mentioned, Victorian slash Edwardian Britain was a very conservative society mm-hmm. where the majority of people were, you know, uh, fundamentalist Christian, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay. Uh, who considered premarital and extramarital sex to be shameful and children born out of wedlock to be born in disgrace. Yeah. Yeah. Let's blame babies. Let's blame the babies because, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. So Lawrence, of course, was always, you know, something of an outsider, mm-hmm. you know, a bastard who can never hope to achieve the same level of social acceptance and success that others could expect who were born legitimately. 
And no girl from a respectable family would ever, you know, marry a bastard. That's so crazy. It's insane. So, you know, and again, this is, I, I wrote a note in my, in my notes mm-hmm. that like this may have caused him to be sympathetic to people who were being oppressed. I'll let you decide that. And again, that comes up later in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he spent a lot of his teenage years being fascinated with history. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He oh my gosh. Listened to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he would have listened to this podcast maybe. Definitely. Definitely. So, in fact, he he spent the summers of 1906 and 1907 when he was like, you know, uh, like a teenager, I think, traveling around the countryside and trying to find historical artifacts and antiquities because, you know, it's England. and Oh, yeah. So You, you could know, do that. You could do that. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. We can't do that here in Los Angeles. <laughs> no. Um, they, you know, they would often watch over, you know, building sites, right? Mm. Because, you know, when they, they'd, they'd have to excavate a little bit, right, before they make a building. And they would take anything that was ancient over to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which is like a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a pretty famous museum. That's so cool. And in fact, there is still a report by the Ashmolean Museum that there's a uh, where there's a portion of that report that reads that two teenage boys, quote... By incessant watchfulness, secured everything of antiquarian value which has been found. And one of those boys was, of course, T.E. Lawrence. Incessant watchfulness? <laughs> yeah. That's so passive-aggressive. Dude, uh, like, I, these kids were annoying. Yeah, they're like... <laughs> it kind of reminds me of Indiana Jones, where mm-hmm. it's like, it belongs in a museum, mm-hmm. when he says that, yes. you know? It's... Oh my god, I, I love this kid. I love this guy. Yeah, what an interesting teenager. In fact, he would go on to study history in college at the Jesus College of Oxford. Oh, cool. I didn't know that yeah. was a thing. Oxford is, I think, really weird. It's very. It's unlike American universities. Like, There's colleges within the university, and they almost operate like autonomously. There's the... Um, at Columbia, mm-hmm. there's Barnard, which similarly, it's like its own college. And then there's Teachers College, which oh. also, fun- and they're, they have their own little cute campuses. They function separately. And I always thought that was weird. Yeah, I think it it's probably like a holdover from like mm-hmm. the olden days. The days of yore. The days of yore, mm-hmm. yes. To to go on the Friends like <laughs> binge, Friends like con- continuity. Yes. Whatever. Uh, guys, I, I have the flu. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> so in July and August of 1908, he cycled 2,200 miles or about, you know, 3,500 kilometers solo through France to the Mediterranean and back researching French castles. That's so cute. I know. And I think specifically he specialized in uh, 14th century castles. Right. Because, you know, as one does. Because... You need to find your niche. <laughs> that is marketing key. Marketing, marketing step number one. Yeah. Identify your niche. I know. And uh, his was 14th century castles. But I wouldn't go too much into the niche because in the following summer of 1909, he set out alone on a three-month walking tour of crusader castles in Ottoman Syria, during which he traveled 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers on foot. During this time, he was shot at, robbed, and beaten, which sadly would become a theme. What? Yes. Okay, question. <laughs> yes. Right, th- I'm not even in the meat of the story. I'm still setting this up, and it's already insane. Like, I'm fascinated by the, his ability to, you know, the Joseph Campbell quote, follow your bliss? Yeah. He's doing that at a very young age. He's like, these are the things that are interesting to me. 
Yeah. And whether it's like on bike or on foot, I'm just going to dedicate my days to learning more and exploring. Like, that's so cool. But question is, how does he have money? I just think, so his, remember, his dad was a baronet. But he didn't lose his title, you think? No, I don't think he did. Oh, he just like he went under a, man, a different name. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, it would have been looked down upon, but he was still the dude. And he still, I think, retained his title. And he, I don't know. Like, I don't think money was a big issue. And also, things were just cheaper back then. Like, mm-hmm. Or it would have been easier to barter or to just like ask a random family, like, can I sleep here? Can I have like, like the equivalent of today, like 50 cents, which pays for like a lot, you okay. know? That, yeah, that's so interesting. And then the other thing that did come to mind was like how risky, but he did get beaten and robbed. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, he, I, it wasn't like, you know, a cakewalk. Yeah, wow. But, you know, and, and, it's, and this was even more insane. It's like, in spite of all of this, he returned to Syria the following year, so like in 1910, <laughs> as part of an archaeological expedition sponsored by the British Museum. His years in the region deepened his knowledge of air. Arabic and the affinity for the Arab people, mm, which mm-hmm. again is key. And I want you guys to keep that in mind. So starting in 1910, Lawrence was offered the opportunity to become a practicing archeologist at Carchemish, which is a, um, it's a pretty historic site in mm-hmm. uh, like present day Turkey. Oh, very cool. I think Turkey or just South of Turkey. I'm not exactly sure, but in the general uh, Asia minor area. Mm-hmm. And this is where he would meet and work with Leonard Woolley, who was known as like the father or one of the, at least one of the fathers of modern archaeology. Yeah, I'm familiar with the name. Yeah. Um, There's even a very cool picture from around 1912 where Lawrence and Woolley are standing next to an early Hittite artifact. What? I know, which if you guys don't know, the Hittites were like like an Indo-European group uh, from the Bronze Age that we know very little about. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's cool. Like he added quite a bit of knowledge, I guess, to our understanding of that culture. Wow. Really cool. Um, And I I have literally wrote my notes, pretty dope if you ask me. (laughs) It is dope, Andrew. Yes. (laughs) So, 1914 comes around. Pretty infamous year. uh, And Lawrence's expedition team is co-opted secretly by the British Army. Mm -hmm. Because World War I is going to happen. I don't know if if this is co-opted before the outbreak of hostilities. But, I mean, it was a powder keg. So, it was probably that they were just waiting for something to happen. Even if it was before the the actual official outbreak. Um, Long story short... They're surveying a desert that would be critical to the Ottoman Empire if they were to invade Egypt. And the British wanted to know everything they could about it as Egypt was Britain's ally. Or mm-hmm. you know, rather, like, I think, I don't know the, the, the full geopolitical context of it at this time, but it might have been like a protectorate of Britain, i.e. like almost like a colony. Yes, colony it was part light. of the Commonwealth. I think right? it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was something. It was complicated, but yeah. Um, and of course... Uh, Later that year, after hostilities had already been, you know, had already outbroken, I guess, mm-hmm. the Lawrence enlisted in the new Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit in Cairo, and he arrived there in December of 1914. It's a brand new established um, portion of the British military designed to, you know, kind of immerse themselves in the Arab people. In the culture, yeah, in the culture, and 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 more so like their their polit- and like understand like their where like their political leanings are like in the terms of the war, right? Because mm-hmm. the you know the Ottoman Empire is part of like the Axis powers, right? Mm-hmm. Along with like Germany and 
I don't know. <laughs> My World War One knowledge is surprisingly not very good, uh, but they were, you know, they were op- they were on the opposing side of Britain. Let's just yeah. put it very simply. No, but to, like, it's funny you say that. I was thinking the same thing as you're talking about this. I was like, wow, I feel like it really wasn't emphasized nearly as much as World War Two for probably a myriad of reasons. But I even right. remember at, at, in college, I took a whole class just on World War Two. Did you take like a, a class just on like fascism? We had like a, a whole like section of that class was specifically on fascism. Yeah. And I had yeah. to do a report on it. That's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That World War One is like never talked about. Uh but it's super interesting. Yes. But anyways, uh, it's also important to note that like when Lawrence enlisted, he had zero military experience at this point, which is crazy considering what's we're going to talk about coming up. Okay. Um, yeah, he's an archaeologist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going into 1915, the situation was intense, I think to say the very least. <laughs> uh, the disparate like Arab peoples were starting to organize into like a pan-Arab nationalist movement where, in general, uh, they were very anti-Ottoman. Okay. Um, they were under the leadership of Sharif Hussein, who was the emir of Mecca. Uh, I guess he was. Kind of, I guess you could almost call him like a king. Okay. A king-like mm-hmm. figure. And fun fact: he was the thirty-seventh generation of direct descendants from Muhammad. What? I know. How do you even track that? Like, someone must have been keeping really, really good notes. Yeah. That's, it's just, that's insane. 37th? 37th generation. Wow. I wonder how, yeah, like, I wonder how accurate that is, or if part of it is uh, wrapped in legend at all. Right. Or if there were records. If anyone knows that's listening. Yeah. Let us know. That's super interesting. It's super, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, But, yeah, there's an... (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot going there's on there's a lot going on <laughs> in and the world basically going back to like kind of the, this pan arab group yes they their ultimate goal was to create an independent arab state mm-hmm. um there was a lot of drama with this i'm sure so obviously the ottomans of course didn't want this but the british and the french you know the allied powers i guess didn't they didn't really want this either no so no one really wanted this except for you know the arab peoples because <laughs> of because of course. Because of course, right? Long oh story short, and I, like you could almost do an entire episode on like the back room dealings with this because there is a lot, and I don't want to get mixed up in it. So, <laughs> in short, Hussein wanted British assurances that this was going to go down, and okay. um, again, a lot of parties weren't keen on this. But eventually, he threatened to ally with the Ottomans if they didn't agree, and they acquiesced. Oh wow, that's a bold move. Yeah. Worked out there. Yeah, did it. we'll see about that. Um, yeah. Let's go back to Lawrence, though, before we get, like, do any more <laughs> geopolitics. He had two brothers, and they unfortunately both died in 1915. Wow. Yeah. Young. And it was this guilt that Lawrence felt that uh, made him leave his safe desk job in Cairo uh, to join the front lines. Oh, no. At the outbreak of the Arab Revolt in 1916. Um, at the beginning of the revolt, Lawrence met with and interviewed Hussein's three sons. And this is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, he was incredibly impressed with the youngest, the third son, Faisal, and suggested that he lead the military portions of the revolt. Mm-hmm. He kind of had that je ne sais quoi, that char- charisma. Mm-hmm. Like a good leadership quality. Exactly. 
And in late December 1916, Faisal and Lawrence worked out a plan for repositioning the Arab forces to prevent the Ottoman forces around the city of Medina from threatening Arab positions and putting the railway from Syria under threat. And this is important because this kind of this guides the strategy for the rest of the war, um, okay. or the majority of the strategy. Lawrence's most important contributions to the Arab result were in this area of strategy and the, being the kind of the liaison between the British armed forces. But he was also, you know, personally um, invested and worked on several military engagements, which included at least, but probably many more, um, a dozen incidents of literally destroying either railways or bridges and other civil constructions. Oh my god. He he kind of became a self-taught like munitions expert. Wow. Yeah, and he taught and he was he almost like broke this down to like beyond a science. It was like an art for him because um I, I think I wrote notes down a little bit later, but I just kind of want to go into it now cuz I think it makes more sense. He developed this way of destroying, you know, the railway or bridge in a way where it's like it's not completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the Ottomans would then have to come guard that and put in a lot of effort kind of deconstructing portions of it and then reconstructing it Mm -hmm. so that they could continue using it Mm -hmm. um instead of outright just destroying it completely where then it would just be abandoned and then ottoman force be rerouted elsewhere Mm -hmm. um and so he was he got really good at that and he taught the he taught faisal you know how to do this and Mm -hmm. he replicated the strategy in multiple areas and to clarify, the point of that strategy is to disperse their, their efforts, essentially. Right. So and that they're not all solidifying in one place, but everyone's kind of distracted. Exactly. Repairing different things. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like a style of like guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. And like almost like uh, damaging morale. Mm-hmm. Was... Yeah, people are going to be tired. People are going to be sick of repairing these train tracks. Yeah. And... Imagine like be like, this is the third time I'm repairing this mofo. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah. And so, yeah, it wasted resources, time, you know, energy, and of course, you know, money. Yes. So, and generally, he advised Faisal to avoid larger battles like, you know, the pitch battles of old and instead opt for these non-regular guerrilla-like warfare. Yeah. And I'm going to read kind of what he said about the Bedouin forces. He said this, and this is a direct quote from him. The value of these of the tribes is defensive only, and their real sphere is guerrilla warfare. They are intelligent and very likely almost reckless, but too individualistic to endure commands or fight in line or to help each other out. It would, I think, be possible to make an organized force out of them. The Hejaz War is one of the dervishes against regular forces, and we are on the side of the dervishes. Our textbooks do not apply to its conditions at all. So basically he's saying that got to throw the textbooks out, mm. you know, in terms of warfare. Play by a new playbook. Play by a new, a brand new playbook. And that's what they did. Okay. And it was clear that it was, you know, advantageous to leave the major city of Medina, mm-hmm. which is kind of like where they base their operations around more or less, right? And they just left it alone rather than try to capture it. And then they had just continued attack, attacking the railway or the Hejaz railway in, in specific mm-hmm. um, because, you know, and without permanently destroying it just because, you know, they wanted to tie up the Ottoman resources okay. and, and like, and basically their, uh, the manpower, I mm-hmm. guess for lack of a better word. 
Uh, again, in my notes, I put real smart, smart. Real smart, smart. They definitely chief of strategizing <laughs> right here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fun fact, you can still to this day go to the Wadi Room Desert and see a train that was blown up by T.E. Lawrence. Really? Yeah. That sounds like, fun. It's over 100 years old. And it's a beautiful desert. Um, did you look up pictures? I did. Oh, I did. It was pretty cool. cool. Yeah. I want to see. Uh, and again, remember how I told you there was a lot of backroom intrigue going on? I feel like this is probably the time to talk about it. So back in England, the British, French, and Russian, and Italian governments had been in secret talks on how to partition the Ottoman Empire's lands once the war was over. Okay. Uh, this was in stark contrast to the interests of the Pan-Arab League. Yeah. As the proposed Arab state would be relegated to like basically the deserts of Arabia alone, while the English and French would get the richer parts of Mesopotamia and Syria. Mm, naughty, the more naughty. fertile lands. And, right. Oh, gosh. I know. Long story short, Lawrence eventually found out about this. We don't know at what time. It's a little bit nebulous. But we do know that he told Faisal about it. I think fairly shortly afterwards, that's kind of traditionally what we think. But again, that's not for certain. And But even telling Faisal was a borderline treasonous yeah. offense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, to me, this really showed the true nature of his character. And, you know, yeah. we'll get into his character, you know, uh, I think more, you know, throughout the story. Uh, but again, it kind of showed where his like, kind of allegiance lied. It's it wasn't, Yeah, he wasn't mm-hmm. just blindly devoted to Britain, right? right? Even though he was British. Right, he... He knew what they were doing was wrong. Right, exactly. And told his friend what was happening. Hey, by the way, I think you're going to get screwed over. Yeah. But let's focus on his activities during like the last part of the war. So 1917, Lawrence took part in what would be the most important part of his involvement in the First World War and was probably the high point. So that his Arab forces, like pretty irregular troops, took the city of Aqaba, which is on the northeastern coast of the Red Sea in present-day Jordan. Um, it, absolutely incredible victory because uh, it was very important strategic location, and they took it over land, which the Ottoman forces were not expecting. They, it would have made much more sense to have a sea assault. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, Ermagerd, you know? They had, <laughs> they had no idea this was happening. Um, and yeah, again, I have to mention that the fact that it was done with Arab irregular troops makes the victory even more impressive. Um, but shortly after, he also experienced probably what would be his low point. Lawrence? Yes. Mm-hmm. He was captured near the town of Dara, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's not important because, he, oh God, this is bad. Um, he was sexually assaulted by his captors. Mm. Yeah. Lawrence would later describe the experience as such, and this is a direct quote. Wait. Yeah. People, if you don't want to hear, right, they could just, like, skip. Yeah. If go you, ahead, like, 30 seconds. Yeah, go ahead 30 seconds. You don't want to hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, in Dara, that night, the citadel of my integrity had been irrevocably lost. Mm, that's so sad. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I suppose, you know, he escaped shortly afterwards, but I think he endured these experiences that left him both physically and psychologically, you know, quote, damaged, right? Right. Um, of course, that's not something you get over on your own in a short amount of time, or just because you left that situation doesn't mean that it's not with you. Amazing that he, where did you find that quote? Where did he share this experience? Do you know? Oh yes, it's it's in a quite a famous book. 
<laughs> I'll get to that later, I promise. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing that for a man of his time to share that yeah. he was assaulted, he, I, um, sexual assault is very hard to disclose, obviously, for so right. many reasons. And for men to disclose, they're very rarely believed. And especially like 100 years ago. Yeah. I'm really surprised that he shared that. But who knows what good that did for someone reading that who at least felt less alone. Right. Wow. Very incredible. I know. It's that was t- I was like, oof, that's that sucks. Mm-hmm. So after this point, like, you know, his exploits in the war aren't as well known. Okay. Uh, so we know by the end of the year, 1917, he took part in a victory parade in Jerusalem, and you know, at the f- at the following year, at the uh, conclusion of the war, he saw the air of victory in securing the city of Damascus or mm-hmm. Damascus, excuse me. But by this point, he was just utterly exhausted yeah i think he had he probably had what we would now call ptsd yeah i think they called it shell shock i'm not even sure if that was even if that's what they called it then he Uh, could have also had some moral injury i think so because i think also uh he he wrote later on that he had to commit some like what he would call atrocities as well yeah and so moral injury to distinguish for anyone who's listening is often when your belief system is shattered or altered or changed in some way and it is common for people in war because you go often thinking that you're there to do good right that your nation that your government that whatever this entity is sending you there for freedom for democracy for whatever it is right. and then when you do things that are you're commanded or put in a situation where you are required to do things that are morally icky for lack of a better word it it changes your belief system mm-hmm. um so it sounds like that's what he was going through a lot in addition yes. to probably the trauma from being assaulted and the trauma of being involved in war and that's my a very God. prescient analysis because we'll it'll make yeah that kind of tie lines up exactly with what will happen oh okay even after the war mm-hmm. um you know he had basically seen the worst that war had to offer, right? Yes. And, you know, to make matters worse, he also saw the petty factionalism that had set in within the Arab peoples once the war was already over. Mm-hmm. Like, immediately. And it was like, oh, come on, guys. Right. He was fighting with them. And mm-hmm. then now they're kind of squabbling with each other. Right. Already. Painful and, to watch. And, of course, this did not help their case for an independent, solidified Arab state. Right. right? And so he was disheartened and disillusioned at this time. And he not only left for home, but he refused a knighthood from the king of England himself. Oh, my God. He politely, but he was not down. Wow. <laughs> and again, I think this really spoke to his character. And I'm going to quote history.com. Okay. And he said, and it said, quote, believing that the British government had betrayed the Arabs by reneging on a promise of independence. Lawrence quietly told the befuddled monarch, you know, the King of England, that he was refusing the honor before turning away and walking out of the palace. Wow. He really had his morals very clear. Yes. Very, very honorable. Very Jon Snow-like. Very, very Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Game of Thrones. R.I.P. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence's story, you know, or rather the parts of the story that we are covering today is, is coming to a close. But before we get there, there's even there's some more things that I want to cover. Um, and I think it's important that we talk about who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've already started that conversation. But, you know, it, it it's it, I think 
you know, I did so much research on him and it seemed like he was probably one of the most honorable people I have ever read up on. Wow. Like it's, it's, it was insane. Like, and it was incredibly clear that he had a very deep admiration for the Arab people and really sympathized with their plight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for instance, he dressed in like traditional chic, you know, Arab garb, right? With the long robes and the, the cool, like, I don't even know what to call it. Like a cool, like kind of a hat. Mm-hmm. Um, just the traditional headwear. Yeah, we'll we'll post pictures like on our Instagram. Where you, you can see it, but it's he. You know, he wrote how much he loved the Middle East, and he even wrote this about the desert. The abstraction of the desert landscape cleansed me. Wow! So he found like almost like a soul connection there. He did, yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, very you know the timing of this is is pretty neat uh, because these were. Some partly like the words f- like that he wrote here inspired the main character Paul Atreides in the hit science fiction series Dune. Oh, really? Yeah, and That's you so know, funny. You just watched, and it the I just other watched day. that the other day. So I was like, <laughs> wow. Uh, and also, Atreides, funny fun fact, is based off of the the mythological Greek house of Agamemnon. Uh huh. From uh, from the Iliad. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways. This just, like, this whole, like, you know, portion of me is, is kind of just analyzing. But, like, it seemed like Aaron Lawrence came, you know, bo- both came alive in the desert, but also kind of came undone. Wow. Yeah. Like, it, two things, like, almost happened simultaneously. Very poetic. Yeah. After the war, you know, he lobbied for Arab independence in the full Arab garb at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. But wow. this, of course, was to no avail. He really, like, uh, walked the talk. He did. You know, it sounds like he didn't just romanticize or even, like, fetishize, like, the Middle East and the culture because he's obviously very well educated in it and its Mm -hmm. history and in the the modern uh, political issues of the people. Right. He really must have felt so connected to their cause. Yeah. I think so. I think I really do think he did he was. That's so interesting to me because this is obviously a gross generalization in, <laughs> it, in and of itself, but I just feel like particularly like western european people throughout history but particularly of this time, I think the general and you know, the US, like the western culture, I think we have often to this day seen ourselves as like the way we do it is obviously the right way. Right. How refreshing to hear about someone who could appreciate another way of, of life and advocate for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes, a lot of it comes down to like, he was a history dude. Right. Right. He loved it. And he saw, I mean, he researched so much and he saw like, you know, the way we do it now is only a sliver of like the whole human experience. That's why history is so important. <laughs> Boom, listen to our history podcast. <laughs> it's so true, though. It, it, I honestly think this is mushy, but part of why I love learning about history is I just, even the weird stories, right? Even when we get into like really silly or goofy or creepy ones, even, mm-hmm. I feel like it reminds us of how, reminds me of how similar and connected and the shared experiences that we have across time, across culture, across the globe. Right. Very cool. I think so, too. I love it, obviously. 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 Um, guess what, though? Oh, it wasn't no. too much later until he was back in the Middle East. Oh. In 1921. For a good reason? Yeah, for, yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, not for warfare, at least. That, that's good. That's good. I think he was Upgrade. tired of it. Yeah. 
uh, he was wooed back to the Middle East as an advisor on Arab affairs to the colonial minister, a man. Mm-hmm. I may, you may have heard of him. His name was Winston Churchill. I once met an English bulldog named Winston Churchill. Is that who you're referring yes. to? Yes. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he stayed in the area. And This it, is how real <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia was. He knew Winston Churchill. Yeah. He truly did. They feel like they're from different times. They do. Like Lawrence, when I think of Lawrence of Arabia, I think of like like some like fantasy figure. It almost feels ancient. Yeah, like a fantasy reason. from yeah. like 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 almost like I don't know, like the early Bronze Age, maybe even before. Like it's so I don't know. Weird. It's crazy, but it sounds like time travel thing. Yeah. And. He stayed in this area at one time, you know, or and, and then at one time, excuse me, uh, he enlisted in the Royal Air Force under an assumed name. Mm. Because I think he was already famous at this point, but wow. not like, not as famous as he would get. Oh my God. But he was pretty famous. And so he, and I think, you know, he was writing a book at the time. So ostensibly this was to have more time for his book. What? Not really sure. He joined the Air Force to have more time to write his book? Yeah, I, I don't really know. That sounds like me logic or something. <laughs> like I would do something really weird and dumb like that. Exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, eventually they found out and he was, like, discharged. What? <laughs> yeah, because, like, Royal Air Force was, like, embarrassed. They're like, go write your book, sir. Yeah. Stop procrastinating. Also, fun fact, mm-hmm. he, and again, this makes me like him even more, he published an English, his own English translation of Homer's Odyssey oh, under the wow. pen name of T.E. Shaw and maintained the assumed name until his death. Wow. Yeah. He could do stuff like that? Th- yeah. And he was... I'm not even going to tell you how young he was at this time. Tell me. He was like in his 30s. Ugh, whatever, dude. Yeah, he was like in his 20s when he was doing all these things like helping overthrow the Empire that took down the last bastion of the Roman Empire. Let's just let that right. sink in for a second. And he's in his 20s. And he was in his 20s. Jeez Louise. <sighs> well, we made a podcast. Boom. Take that, <laughs> Lawrence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, speaking of works, I think it's time to Matt mention his magnum opus, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And... This was one of the few works from the 20th century, and I think maybe the only work in English from that time period that makes an epical figure out of a contemporary, which is insane. Like, he is a modern-day epic, uh, like, figure. Yeah, that's crazy. And also, it's very, very apt that he wrote about the, you know, wrote, like, his own version of the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Because that's also an epic figure. Yes. So... I mean, he literally is a real life, like, living, or, you know, he used to be living, like, a hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, of course, he's also the basis, and this work is the basis of the 1962 classic movie, Lawrence of Arabia, starring Peter O'Toole, Mm. which became an instant classic and is, to this day, still considered a cinematic masterpiece, winning, I think, Best Picture and Best Actor. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've heard of the movie. I've never seen it. Right. I know it's like a, a classic oh, for a it's, reason. It's almost four hours long. Oh. So I, I, oh. I kind of want to see it, but at the same time, I kind of don't. I think we would need to just do it over a weekend and do like 
Friday night, two hours, Saturday night, two hours or something. I think so. It is. I think it's a two parts. So actually, okay, there's an intermission. So we can. There we'll, needs to be when it's four hours. I mean, long. that's insane. Yeah. Four hours. It's like technically, I think three hours, like forty eight minutes, but still, regardless. So here's how Encyclopedia Britannica describes the movie. Though overpopulated with adjectives and often straining for effects and art, it is nevertheless an action-packed narrative of Lawrence's campaigns in the desert with the Arabs. The book is replete with incident and spectacle, filled with rich character portrayals and a tense introspection that bears the author's own complex mental and spiritual transformation. Though admittedly inexact and subjective... It combines the scope of heroic epic with the closeness of autobiography. Oh wow! Yeah, That's so quite a review. Yeah, they basically kind of described it in a in a sense, but it's not the most historically accurate movie in the world. Oh, it's that's just, what they were trying to say. Let's just say that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, but also kind of fun fact that guy Peter O'Toole. Yes. He is. He plays King Piram in the Troy movie with Brad Pitt. He plays King Piram in the Troy movie with Brad Pitt. I've never seen that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's the movie we're supposed to see. And oh, like, yeah. for some reason, we never am we able keep, to. We keep moving Yeah, I remember seeing that when I was like 12 and I was like, oh, this is the sickest movie ever. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, I, everyone who's listening, I'm right now I'm reading The Song of Achilles. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like relevant. Yes. Yeah. I read it and then I was like, you have to read this. It's so, so good. Speaking so, of instant classics, right? Yeah. Instant classic novel. If anyone hasn't read it. Um, I really recommend it. It's very poetic writing, really cool for like history nerds. Yeah. Um, and I think she is a classicist. So like she understands. She is. Yeah. yeah. And she took Madeline Miller is her name. I believe mm-hmm. she took 10 years to write it or something Damn. crazy. Like so much research. And she professionally <clears throat> translates works from like ancient Greek and ancient Latin. Yeah. No big deal. No big deal. We have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So back to Lawrence. We do know that he became somewhat of an author, obviously, during this time, but not much is known about him in later years. So he did work for, again, for the RAF, but it was not allowed to fly and was discharged on February 26, 1935. He felt both optimistic about future publishing work and a sense of emptiness at the same time. Oh my god, dude. I know. I was like, damn, dude. If he feels empty, I don't know what I feel. <laughs> <laughs> to a friend, he described himself as puttering about as if there is something broken in the works. My will, I think. Mm, I was yeah. like, oh, my poor baby. Think of all everything he endured. And that isn't being addressed at that time. You know, mental health is far from being a topic i know and people think about i think he accomplished so much so quickly that it's like what now what now and the trauma right like still living with the the side effects the symptoms of that oh my god i know that does sound hard well uh unfortunately two and a half ish months later um on may 13th of that year 1935 he was in a motorcycle accident and died six days later at the age of 46. So young. So young. And tragically, like, and in speaking of which, like, in my mind, he became a full-blown Shakespearean tragic character. Yeah. Like, wow. Like, Shakespearean epic tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's insane. And I'm just gonna, like, 
I, there is just like a few words that I, I wanted to say, but I think Encyclopedia Britannica just like does a better job of saying those words. So I'm just going to read directly what they said about him. Go for it. Lawrence became a mythic figure in his own lifetime, even before he published his own version of his legend in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. His accomplishments themselves were solid enough for several lives. More than a military leader, an inspirational force behind the Arab revolt against the Turks, he was a superb tactician and a highly influential theoretician of guerrilla warfare. Besides the seven pillars of wisdom, his sharply etched service service chronicle, The Mint, and his mannered prose translation of the Odyssey added to a literary reputation further substantiated by an immense correspondence that establishes him as one of the major letter writers of his generation. Lawrence found despair as necessary as ambition. Mm -hmm. He lived on the masochistic side of asceticism, and part of his self-punishment involved creating within himself a deep frustration to immediately follow and cancel out high achievement by denying to himself the recognition he had earned. At its most extreme, this impulse involved a symbolic killing of the self, a taking up of a new life and a new name. Under whatever guise, he was a many-sided genius whose accomplishments precluded the privacy he constantly sought. By the manufacture of his myth, however uh, however solidly based, he created in his own person a characterization rivaling any in contemporary fiction. Wow. Like, how? yeah. I, I'm kind of at a loss for words. Mm-hmm. He was definitely a multi-passionate person. Yeah. Very intelligent, very talented. Um, it does make me sad, though, that he felt the need to, to be like the tragic suffering artist. Yeah. Or that that, not, maybe he didn't feel the need isn't the right way to say it, but that that befell him. Mm-hmm. Because I'm here to tell you, therapist Stephanie comes out. <laughs> you don't need to suffer for your art, you know? Yeah. It sounds almost like he felt nothing he did was ever good enough and he wasn't worthy of enjoying his awesomeness. I think that you're exactly right. Which we all should do. We should all celebrate ourselves and recognize what we've done. Because imagine he died so young and tragically. Tragically, I wish he had enjoyed the the amazing things he did. Yeah, <sighs> it's really sad. Mm-hmm. But you know that is the amazingly tragic life of T. E. Lawrence, or better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And again, based off upon everything I read, it really makes sense how I didn't know he was an actual real person until yes. college because yeah. everything he did that was just insane. He became a character. A historical character while alive right so yeah it makes perfect sense that neither of us knew for a very long time that he was a real life person he was like an ancient like hero like hero in modern times like, yes like and i mean like hero in the sense of like the bronze age heroes right yes. or like the heroes of like of classical antiquity mm-hmm. it, it, it insane Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, so, thank you for sharing that yeah, story. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, before I forget, sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a long time since I've forgotten them. So, ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> first of all, history.com. It was incredible. Um, 
a great article on on him. Smithsonian Magazine had an amazing, like almost biopic on him. Oh, cool! Uh, they interviewed the. I think it was he was the grandson of Faisal. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so I, even in its own right, that's like a really interesting article because yes. it centers on T. Lawrence but goes into other directions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, PBS had some good stuff on him. Encyclopedia Britannica coming in hot with the dramatism really yeah well you know based off everything i read that was straight mm-hmm. from them oh right right they and really then, were passionate you know my favorite of course wikipedia perfect they perfect. help us fill in the gaps they they really do they really do <laughs> support wikipedia <laughs> yeah i know i give like i i think i gave 20 dollars this this year i give yeah like every year i'll give a few just because i've relied on them since like high school to, yeah. to get through life Been around forever mm-hmm. well I have to take a deep breath because that was kind of, that was intense. Yeah. Thank you for reading that and for sharing that. I know you aren't feeling well also. I yeah. didn't know how long it would be and you must be so tired. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty exhausted. <laughs> but I think it's just such an interesting story. And I just, I, I felt like so connected to him. I don't know why. Maybe because he was also a history nerd. Right. You know, and I just was like, and he also was a history nerd, but he like, he created history as well. And I think that's so cool. Mm, yes. Usually you think of, and this is a stereotype we can all break, but I do think there's the stereotype of like someone who's interested in history or is a historian as being an observer rather than an action taker. Yeah. And he was both. He was both. Very unique combination. I think it's definitely inspiration. Mm-hmm. Inspiration for me. Well, that is all I have for you. Yay! And I hope you guys, you weirdos, I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thank you guys for listening. You know the drill, our friends. Thank you so much, first of all, to everyone who emails us, DMs us, leaves comments. We appreciate you so, so much. Please leave a review, you know, share the podcast with a friend, subscribe, because those things help get the podcast out to other weirdos who would like to listen to us ramble about things that we find interesting (laughs) with each other in our living room with our dog stella says hi by the way yeah she was right here with us for like quite a while yeah and she says hello uh weirdos (laughs) in this voice hi weirdos yes (laughs) she's very unattractive voice (laughs) such a cute little doggy (laughs) yes but thank you all so much and until next time weirdos adios weirdos (laughs) 